Doug said earlier, we are beginning a series now for the next several weeks that will cover the Lenten uh, time, if you will, the Holy Spirit and Holy Week. We've entitled it The Glory of Jesus as the Spirit of God leads Jesus through the final week of his ministry. It begins with what we know as the triumphal entry. So let's read out of Luke chapter 19. And by the way, this particular incident is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. It's also found in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and John 12. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The Holy Spirit and Jesus in the triumphal entry As I was studying these passages and looking for the work of the Holy Spirit, I came across an interesting connection. The Bible tells us uh, in in one of the gospel narratives, I believe it's John, John chapter 12 and verse 16, that when this triumphal entry of Jesus was going on, his disciples, the, the apostles, didn't particularly get it. They didn't particularly understand all of the impact at that time. And the Bible says in verse 16 of John 12, they didn't understand it yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. Then you go back to John chapter 7 and verse 39. And the Bible says there that the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so apparently the Holy Spirit helped the disciples later on to get the full impact of the triumphal entry. And I would pray that he would favor us in that way today as well. Also, it's kind of interesting preaching on the triumphal entry, and it's not Palm Sunday. Because typically, this is the celebration that we equate with Palm Sunday, and the little children carrying the palms and so on, the triumphal entry. And I got to thinking about it. I said, is it okay to preach on the birth of Jesus other than Christmas? Is it okay to preach on the resurrection of Jesus other than Easter? Is it okay to preach on Pentecostal power of the Holy Ghost other than Pentecost Sunday? I think it is. So we'll go ahead and preach on the triumphal entry, even though it's not Palm Sunday. Is that all right? 
I remember as a young pastor in uh, Los Angeles, a pastor there first, and uh, I remember one of my first great conflicts in the church to handle as a pastor because one deacon in our congregation got really upset with another deacon who led the singing in July and led us and hark the herald angels sing. And this deacon was really upset that we would sing a Christmas carol in the middle of July. So you can see the things pastors have to deal with. It's pretty tough stuff, you know. So I remember dealing with that. But anyway, here we are, the triumphal entry. And as we look at this passage, obviously there is so much to share. But I wish to draw three highlights for us briefly this morning. The first would be the prophecy. Both Matthew and John, in their accounts of the triumphal entry, allude to the fact that when the Lord Jesus comes riding on this colt, the young male foal or the donkey, young male donkey, the Bible says that that is fulfilling a prophecy or that which was written by the prophet. And apparently that is Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 in the Old Testament where Zechariah said, Behold, your king is coming, gentle and having salvation, and he is riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here the Lord Jesus is doing that. So first of all, there is the fulfillment of prophecy. And it's interesting. You could also study Isaiah 62 and verse 11. And you could study Genesis 49, verses 9 through 12. That's interesting. That's a prophecy of Jacob right back in the book of Genesis where Jacob mentions about the scepter never departing from Judah. In other words, a king would always come from Judah, and that's the tribe Jesus was from. And Jacob, all those years before, mentions a donkey, and he mentions the foal of the donkey or the colt, all in this prediction that he makes. So you see the Old Testament prophesying of this triumphal entry. Along with that, the Bible says in this prophecy that he would come riding this young male donkey. Now, that's sensible in the sense that when you read Matthew, you find that they not only got the young donkey, but they got the mother donkey of this young colt as well. And it's been suggested that the mother was brought along because the Lord Jesus on this colt that had never been ridden before is moving through this cheering, screaming crowd, and the young donkey would be a bit more at ease with his mother by his side. And of course, as well, the Lord Jesus, because of who he is, would be able to settle the donkey anyway. Secondly, it's a matter, I think, of being sacred. You see, if you go back and study the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 19, verse 2, and Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 3, and 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 7, you will find there are instances where they took cattle or oxen that had never known the weight of a yoke. In other words, had never been harnessed, virgin, if you will, and they used them for various sacred purposes. So our Lord Jesus here rides this young colt of a donkey who has never been ridden. One Bible teacher pointed out that with Jesus it's always new. It's a virgin womb from which he is born. It is a young donkey that has never been ridden upon which he rides, and it is a new tomb in that no one has ever been laid in in which he is buried. And so in a sense, this young donkey having never been ridden, this is a sacred experience. And then finally, it's a significant experience. This is the son of David coming. 
And you see, when King David's son, in the immediate sense, Solomon, was presented as the new king of Israel, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 32 through 40, that he was presented riding on the mule of King David. Now this greater and later son of David, Jesus Christ, comes being presented as the king on a donkey. And it's interesting. The Bible says that the disciples lay their cloaks or their coats over the donkey so it's like a saddle for Jesus to ride on. And then others begin to spread their cloaks along the road as he comes along, like rolling out the red carpet. And that's what you would do with a king. You go back and study First King, or Second Kings 9 and verse 13. The Bible says that when Jehu had been anointed king of Israel, that the people put their cloaks up the stairs so that as he walked up, they cried out, Jehu is king. And so the Lord Jesus has been prophesied, your king is coming. And now we have the presentation. Here is the king. You see, we find in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2, the wise men came to Herod years before and said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And the people like Herod understood when they're talking about the king of the Jews, they're also talking about the Messiah because he turned around in that same passage and he said to the leaders spiritually of Israel, he said, Where is the Christ or the Messiah to be born? And so the wise men came looking for the king of the Jews. The Lord Jesus grew up. He begins his public ministry. And at one point, he feeds over 5,000 people with five loaves and two small fishes. And the people are so enthralled with him that the Bible says he knew that they were going to make him king. And so Jesus withdrew himself. His public ministry was not about presenting himself as a king to the people. However... We now come to the end of his public ministry. And on this last week's beginning, the Lord Jesus Christ ignites this triumphal entry and he does present himself as the king. Because the people begin to cry out in, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 38 of our text. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Lord Jesus does not rebuke that. The Lord Jesus does not stop that. In just a few days, he will stand before Pilate, Luke chapter 23 and verse 3. And Pilate will look at him as the governor and say, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus Christ will reply, Yes, it is as you say. Then we come to John chapter 19, verses 14 and 15. And Pilate will go out to the crowd and he say, what shall I do with your king? Or he says, behold your king. And the people cry out, take him away, take him away, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate replies, shall I crucify your king? And the leaders say, we have no king but Caesar. And then Pilate will turn Jesus over to the Roman soldiers. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 27, that the soldiers stripped him of his clothes and then they put a purple robe on him like royalty and they put on his head a crown of thorns and they bowed down before him and mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. The Bible said then he was led away to be crucified. Mark chapter 15 and verse 26, it says the written notice of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. And they nailed it to his cross. 
And then the Bible says the chief rulers walked around the cross of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27 and verses 41 and 42. And they said he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. And he died. But he rose. He ascended. And he is coming back. That's the rest of the story about this king. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. John said, I saw a rider on a white horse, no longer a donkey, but a white horse. And he said, I looked at this rider on the white horse called Faithful and True. He said, he comes to judge with justice and make war. He has eyes that are blazing like fire. On his head are many crowns. Out of his word, out of his mouth proceeds a sharp sword with which to devour the nations. His robe is dipped in blood. And he has written on his robe and on his thigh a name. King of kings and Lord of lords. Years ago when Johnny Carson still hosted the Tonight Show, one time he had a guest, Billy Graham. And Johnny Carson said to Billy Graham on the show that night, he said, Billy, he said, what if Jesus Christ came back to earth? We'd probably do him again, wouldn't we? And Dr. Graham leaned forward and he said, Johnny, Jesus Christ did predict that he would come back again. He said the first time he came in love, the next time he's coming in power. And nobody is going to do him. The Apostle Paul, in praising the king, said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance or deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. But in me, as the worst of sinners, Paul said, I was shown mercy that Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example to those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. My challenge to you and I this morning is the challenge of the old hymn, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. And as Jesus Christ came, being present, presented as the King, the Messiah, even though it was momentary in their minds, the Bible tells us that there was great praise appropriately. There are times when God brought great praise because of his son. Remember at his birth, God sent him and he knew he came to die. And yet the heavens are filled with the angelic host praising God. Now in this moment to be revealed as king and Messiah, though later rejected by the people and the ultimate sovereign purpose, purposes of the Almighty, the Lord Jesus is presented and the crowds do cheer and the disciples do praise. I noted three things in this text about this praise. First of all, it is impressed praise. 
the Bible says that they were impressed and praising God because of the miracles, literally the works of power that they had seen Jesus do. You know, I can understand that. I can remember uh, uh, vacationing in Yosemite National Forest out there in um, um, Central California and standing one evening by the redwood trees towering so tall and looking at the, uh, the rock face of Half Dome. And my son and I would climb up uh, part of it and, and so on and, or, you know, hike up on the side. And, we just, and, and I was just overwhelmed. And I found myself singing, Oh, Lord, my God, how great thou art. experiencing, if you will, that worship, that praise. Just last Monday, after a loved one came through a major heart surgery, I found myself about an hour later having to make a quick uh, trip in the car. And as I reflected on God's grace and bring them through that surgery, I found myself singing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And here's the amazing part. I was singing it Barrett style with the amen. I said, man, I didn't even know that until I started coming to this contemporary service. And I'm just, I'm, I'm praising God because of his works of power. Not only was it impressed praise, it was inspired praise. They are crying out, blessed is he, Lord, save us, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you see, these praises come right out of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, where the psalmist said, oh, Lord, save us. That's exactly what Hosanna means. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 26. And I would say that's what makes praise, praise. You can go to a ball game and cheer. You can go to a parade and clap your hands. You can go to some activity that gets you stirred up and hoot and holler. But when you're in sacred praise, if you will, it's because it's directed toward the Lord and it's based directly upon quotes and concepts of the Scripture. That new song that Barrett taught us this morning, and Tyler, what did it say to us? His promises are true. That's right out of the Word. We look to the hills or we look to him from where our help comes. That's right out of the Psalms. That's the idea of praise. We exalt God based on what we know about God from the Word of God. So it's impressed praise, it's inspired praise, and then ultimately it is intense praise. It says they cried out in praise with loud voices. And it's not the volume level that's the point. I remember being in RFK Stadium with over 40,000 men at a promise keepers meeting. And as I saw the aisle uh, filled down below with thousands of men when they gave the invitation to come and commit your life to Christ, I mean, we were standing up there toward the top. Brother Dave Rossberg from the church here and I were there among that group, and we were just crying out and praising God and lifting our hands and shouting and weeping and carrying on. But sometimes it can be intense and yet quiet. Recently in an art exhibit, I saw a painting, small but powerful. It was a painting of the crucifixion. 
And it was painted as though it was dark, those hours of darkness that surrounded the cross. And I'm walking through seeing all these paintings, and this small painting there of Christ crucified in the darkness, it just hit me. And right there in that history center, I had this moment of praise and worship where the tears filled my eyes. My spirit was moved at what my Savior did for me. Praise him. Thank him. Thank you, Jesus. The Pharisees didn't like it. They said, teacher, tell your disciples to quit praising, to be quiet. Maybe they were angry because they didn't want Jesus to be acclaimed as king and Messiah. Maybe they were afraid because they figured Roman soldiers hearing about uh, uh, cheering for some king of Israel might think there's a rebellion or a coup or a revolt going on, and they would come with their swords. But Jesus replied, if these disciples don't praise me, the stones will. Many believe he was quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 11, where the stones will cry out from the walls. Let me ask you this morning and ask myself, will we give God the glory or be replaced by a rock? Will we praise his name or be replaced by a rock? Will we exalt in his salvation or be replaced by a rock? Will we praise his power or be replaced by a rock? Will we testify to his goodness or be replaced by a rock? Will we thank him for his mercy or be replaced by a rock? Will we acclaim him king of kings? and king of our lives or will we be replaced by a rock?